welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann, and I am the host of this episode. Today, I'm joined by Gabrielle Fund, a postdoctoral researcher who works at Northwestern University. Welcome, Gabrielle. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. So your research focuses on sense of purpose. Can you tell me what sense of purpose is and how you measure if a person has a sense of purpose? Yes, definitely. So sense of purpose can be defined as the extent to which one feels that they have personally meaningful goals and directions guiding them through life. So and to assess this, we use different measures like the purpose in life subscale from Carol Riff and the life engagement test by Michael Shire that ask people questions, things like, to me, the things I do are worthwhile, and they rate their level of agreement with that. So if someone were to say, to me, the things I do are worthwhile, that would represent having a higher sense of purpose, while other items like my daily activities are trivial and unimportant to me would represent having a lower sense of purpose if someone agreed highly with that. Cool. Thank you so much. So what drew you to that research topic? Is there like a cool origin story of how Gabrielle became a sense of purpose researcher? Yeah, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was reading through our questions. And to some extent, it felt sort of like an iterative process of sorts. When I was an undergrad, I went to a small liberal arts university called Pepperdine. And for the most part, people studying psychology there were more interested in going the therapy route, but there are professors there still doing research. And so a professor I really liked was looking for a new research assistant. Her name's uh, Cindy Miller Perrin. And while I was you know, starting to work with her, she said, here's this long survey I give students every single year. What are some variables that you think are interesting from this? And go to the literature, kind of see what's happening with them. And I was, through that process, I was interested in well-being and purpose. And so I got sort of my first exposure with the construct in undergrad. Then I got to do my PhD with Patrick Hill. Doing my PhD, he gave me a lot of opportunities to evaluate other constructs as well, if desired, like he's done research on the big five, optimism, gratitude, a wide range of other things. But for me, my interest kept coming back to sense of purpose. So while I still am interested in like well-being broadly and just people living well, happy, good, satisfying lives, sense of purpose has always kind of come back to me as this construct that goes beyond just feeling good, but also having some orientation to something bigger than yourself, or at least a future orientation towards some sort of goal or aim. Super cool. Thank you. For those who don't know your research and Pat Hill's research, how important is it for people to have a sense of purpose? Can you walk me through the research that has been done so far? I'm biased, but based on my own research and the research from a lot of other people, it's very important for people to have a higher sense of purpose. Having a higher sense of purpose is connected to well-being on the front of people with a higher sense of purpose experience more positive emotions, fewer negative emotions, are less reactive to daily stressors. Um, it's also connected to a lot of physical health outcomes. So people with a higher sense of purpose have lower risk for stroke and other heart disease. In the cognitive functioning or the healthy aging literature, sense of purpose over, you know, 15 or 20 years now has really unveiled itself to be important where people with a higher sense of purpose experience slower cognitive decline and are at less risk for dementia. And then it's no surprise when you take all of that into account that people with a higher sense of purpose simply live longer lives. So across the board, having a higher sense of purpose means you'll have a happier, healthier and longer life. Do you know anything about like social relationships or uh, work or anything else that is not health related? Yes. So some of the research that I started doing in graduate school was looking at the connection between sense of purpose and social relationships, because to that point, there really hadn't been much in that context where all these other life domains have generally been covered, but not as much with social relationships. And what I found in this context is that 
in general, purposeful people feel more satisfied with their relationships, whether that be like romantic relationships or friendships. But that connection in particular seems to be a little bit more bi-directional in nature, where it's not just being purposeful means you have better relationships, but also having the social support, um, because there's been work with social support also with like relationship quality in romantic relationships or just positive social interactions. Those predict later sense of purpose as well. So that seems a bit more bi-directional. On the work front, there's been some research by, I believe, Pat, Sarah Weston and Teresa Cartador that's looked at the connection between sense of purpose, occupational pr- prestige, and I believe the other construct was occupational satisfaction. And sense of purpose typically isn't tied to occupational prestige, but it is tied to occupational satisfaction. And so that's probably another case where I would guess the relationship is at least in part bi-directional, where if you are a more purposeful person, you might have a better idea of the things that you want for yourself and you want to do, which helps you select into careers that are better fit for you. But if you find a career that's a really good fit for you, then that in turn can help bolster your sense of purpose. And I think that's a particularly meaningful construct or thinking of the work context is particularly important when you're thinking of older adults, because we often see that people following retirement, their sense of purpose does decline. And there's individual differences in change trajectories there where that's not the case for everyone. But in general, we do see people's sense of purpose decline following dropping working. So you summarized that sense of purpose is really important for a lot of different life domains and like longitudinally predicts changes in health. So can I understand sense of purpose to be the main driver of these effects? Or do you think it's something else that is associated with sense of purpose and these trajectories and changes in people's lives? Yeah. So I think that's a great and very important question um, and something I've thought about a lot as well. So in a lot of these studies, Things like depressive symptoms or conscientiousness or neuroticism, you know, your big, big five drivers um, have been accounted for. And we see that though, to some extent, the sense of purpose effect might decrease a little bit, it still remains. When thinking of the big five, people often ask me, oh, isn't sense of purpose just, you know, conscientiousness? Because there's like a degree of, you know, industriousness and goal orientation to some extent with conscientiousness. And I remember kind of really struggling with that question my first couple of years of my PhD, because I was wondering how distinct are these things? And they are positively associated with each other. I think the correlation is typically like 0.3 to 0.4. So that is notable. But I think back to, I think Lou Goldberg had a paper from like 1993 or 1999, where he went through all of these different adjectives and kind of mapped onto what aspects of the different big five traits, different adjectives went with. And he described one of the distinctions he made between conscientiousness and sense of purpose. I, I think he was calling it just purpose was that conscientiousness could be hardworking, but without passion. And so I think these things are connected, but I think some of the motives behind what drives the you know purposeful or conscientious actions could differ. Kind of taking a step back though to the prediction front. So yes, when we control for conscientiousness or neuroticism, we still see that these health predictions remain, but also purpose has been connected to meaningful mechanisms as well with health. So for example, people who have a higher sense of purpose are more likely to engage in physical activity. They're more likely to floss and eat their vegetables and things that we know are going to promote health outcomes. They're also more likely to rely on preventative healthcare services. And since they have better social networks, we know in older adulthood in particular, social isolation is a one of the main modifiable risk factors for cognitive decline. So while it's the case that sense of purpose is connected to these other constructs, that are 
related to these outcomes, we also have found at least some initial mechanistic pathways that help us understand why sense of purpose is predicting these outcomes above and beyond related constructs. Thanks. I was wondering who are the people who are more likely to have a sense of purpose compared to those who have maybe a less sense of purpose? Is this like an age effect or gender or education? Yeah, so there's a lot of different things at play here. One of the biggest things is age. So typically we see that sense of purpose has a curvilinear association with age where typically early on in adolescence and emerging adulthood, sense of purpose tends to be a little bit lower. And a lot of this thing we think is tied in part to the identity development process. You're still figuring out who you are, what you want for yourself, what your values are. And all of those things are really meaningful questions when you're trying to figure out What is it that I want in my life? What are the things that matter to me? In middle-aged adulthood, we often see that sense of purpose is at its highest and most stable. This is in part tied to greater stability in careers, relationship roles, things like that. Um, and then in older adulthood, we often see sense of purpose beginning to decline, which is in part tied to things like retirement, but also cognitive and physical health declines. Um, and it's kind of interesting to see this because then there are other well-being constructs such as life satisfaction where that association with age is actually kind of flipped. And so people, you know, that's another thing people will ask, well, isn't just, do you actually get anything from sense of purpose that you wouldn't get from, you know, life satisfaction? Um, and some research I'm currently working on, sense of purpose is a much stronger predictor of cognitive health than life satisfaction is. So this is kind of another example where, yes, these things are connected, but they're likely different processes at play. When thinking of some of the other variables that you've mentioned, I often get asked about SES. And there have been people who, who have said to me, well, isn't sense of purpose just something for like wealthy white people? And I've always found that question a little bit odd because people can be in a wide range of contexts and still find what they do matters. Like parents typically feel more purposeful and that doesn't mean that's not hard, but they have a higher sense of purpose. That said, having privilege, you know, is going to make it easier for you to opt into the things that you most want to do. When we've looked at different factors related to SES, it's, it's kind of a complicated picture, but You know, in one study, we looked at subjective SES, so like the SES ladder where people put which rung they're on. And this was just a cross-sectional study with 2,000 people. And we saw a negative association with sense of purpose of like negative 0.1. So in this case, people who were rating themselves on a higher rung, rung were slightly less, less purposeful. But that's, you know, pretty weak association. But then when you look at things like income... It's the same magnitude, but it's flipped. So still a small association with it. In this case, having slightly higher income is associated with slightly higher sense of purpose. I'm trying to think back to education specifically, and I can't remember off the top of my head how associated education is. I think it's a, another small positive association. But once again, all of these things kind of show that these, you know, broader socio-demographic characterizations are not that large of a determinant of this of this construct. So this is something that people hopefully are able to seek and find for themselves, regardless of, you know, things like wealth or education. But of course, having those things makes more doors open. Do you know of any studies that have been conducted outside the US? Yes. Yeah. So in, um, so Patrick Hill has a paper, I can't remember if it was just accepted. No, I think, I think it might've just been accepted where he was working with a student like that he'd started this project back when he was in Canada. And they were looking at how sense of purpose and conscientiousness measures functions and in, um, indigenous tribe in Canada. And in this case, when you're thinking of, you know, measurement and variance, 
conscientiousness was not something that met even, you know, basic measurement and variance criteria. However, since a purpose did, there's also been research in Japan, there's a construct in Japan called Ikigai, that's a similar a fairly similar definition to how we define sense of purpose. That's, from my understanding, fairly salient across their culture. There's been a lot of stuff in, you know, Germany and Switzerland with sense of purpose where it's similar thing. Overall, though there are many populations that still have been overlooked with purpose research, there's some evidence that beyond just like your classic, like Western European US samples that we're seeing that this construct is consistent and valued. One thing that's less tied to culture and more tied to development is uh, I have a paper that was recently accepted at Developmental Psych with Gabriel Olaru, Matthias Alamond, and Patrick Hill looking at measurement and variance of sense of purpose in MIDAS and HRS. HRS is the Health and Retirement Study, and MIDAS is the Midlife United States Studies. So both of these are longitudinal panel studies that have been happening in the U.S. for a couple or so decades now that follow people as they age. HRS is a generally older sample since it is focused on health and retirement. And then Midas is on average like a decade or so younger, um, but both have thousands of participants, um, three plus waves for Midas. And I don't know how many waves at this point for HRS for the purpose and life subscale, at least uh, four. So what we wanted to see was whether purpose was functioning the same way for people across age. Because there are certain items in the classic like purpose and life subscale from Carol Riff's psychological well-being scale that don't seem like they would be perceived the same way if you're 30 versus 80. Like one of the items that kind of struck this for me is I feel like I've done all there is to do in life. And so this is, if you agree with this, this is supposed to represent having a low sense of purpose. If you think of, you know, Eric Erickson's integrity versus despair stage, that kind of final stage of aging, feeling like you've done everything you've sought out to do would generally be a positive thing. While if you're 20 years old and you're saying, I feel like I've done all there is to do in life, that might be a little bit more problematic. And so there are different items and the purpose and life subscale that kind of made us wonder, is it the case that this is functioning the same for people? We use local structural equation modeling. So we're able to, you know, actually model age continuously when evaluating different um, aspects of model fit. And at an item level, we really didn't run into any issues. But what became really interesting is that at higher ages, the positively valenced purpose items and the negatively valenced purpose items became less associated with each other. So it was more of a structural invariance issue where... At um, you know, the age of 40, three positive items and four negative items, those two factors had a correlation of 0.8. So very, very strong correlation. This is the same construct. But by the time that people got to the around 80, that correlation dropped to 0.47. So we're seeing that there's the, the separation of these items at higher ages. And the review process for this ended up going for a developmental site, it was interesting because rather than focusing on like, okay, what is this with development? There were a lot of questions about, okay, what are from the reviewers about like response styles and things like that. And so one thing that could be happening here is that rather than this actually being an age thing, it could be a cognitive functioning thing. And so we're picking up on something with, you know, cognitive decline that might make the wording of these items be perceived a little bit differently, which is a study that um, Emily Wilroth and I are, and Brian James are going to do with and see whether the separation of these factors is better explained by actual global cognitive functioning levels rather than simply age. But the other part of my study with Gabriel, Matias, and Pat is we wanted to see what does this mean for prediction? Is it the case that when we look at these commonly established effects that we see with sense of purpose predicting different well-being outcomes, different health, cognitive functioning, one of the, the 
positive, which we call like the purposeful factor and the negative or the purposeless factor predicts things differently. When Midas, it was quite consistent, the all of the effect sizes. But with HRS, we saw that the purposeless factor actually predicted things like cognitive functioning, and I believe household income more strongly than the purposeful factor did. So not only is it the case that this construct is more complicated at, at higher ages, but it might also be the case that when we're trying to understand what it predicts, keeping this more like single factor approach that would have been used since, you know, 1989 was when Carol first published the measure could be flawed in certain contexts with the cognitive aging context while like well-being and like self-reported health, the more actually subjective measures, we didn't see an issue. That was really interesting. So what do you think, and you've already mentioned this a little bit with your own research, but what do you think will be the next crucial steps in the field of studying sense of purpose? Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. One of the questions I get frequently that I've already kind of touched on a little bit here is, you know, how distinct is sense of purpose? How much of this is sense of purpose? In, you know, longitudinal context, we have been able to narrow in on when sense of purpose might be the thing potentially like making the effect happen, I suppose. But there are kind of two pathways here. First, if we know sense of purpose is good, and there are a lot of people that have a lower sense of purpose, what do we do about it? Is it something that's possible to intervene upon? Um, and kind of focusing on that pathway first, something that's really helpful in us being able to understand that is looking at within-person variability in the short term. So if it's the case that someone, um, and this is kind of a an idea, I think fairly widely discussed in personality psychology, if you have a lot of within-person variability and like the short term, then that probably means that construct's going to be a little bit easier to intervene upon. So in my dissertation, what I focused on was assessing sense of purpose in four different samples at the hourly, daily, weekly, and monthly level to understand, okay, when we look in the short term, are we seeing that this construct is fluctuating? And so with that, I found, yes, that is the case. And the shorter the term, the more fluctuations we're experiencing, that these fluctuations and sense of purpose were more strongly tied to fluctuations in positive emotions than they were in negative emotions. So positive affect and sense of purpose might be more tied together at a momentary or daily level than sense of purpose and negative affect, which I think is kind of interesting. And to me makes some sense because there are going to be times where what feels really purposeful might require some degree of negative emotions. And though that association is still negative, just, just weaker, but kind of relatedly going back to what I first started saying, then we kind of I realized that context was important first. Emily Wilroth, Tobias Springsteen, and I currently have a registered report under review where we will be collecting ecological momentary assessment data seven times a day over a 14-day period. And at each time point, people will be reporting on their sense of purpose, life satisfaction, positive emotions, negative emotions, psychological richness, a couple other well-being variables, and then the big five personality states. And what we're doing with this project is we're using group iterative multiple model estimation, which is going to kind of allow us to disentangle these momentary nomothetic versus more ideographic associations in people with a couple goals to understand this. So one of the things is understanding, you know, just like well-being as a system. How consistent is it across people? Is it the case that sense of purpose typically precedes positive emotions? Do they typically co-occur? Does it differ a lot across people? And then going from there... I mentioned this a couple of times to this point now, when people are often saying, well, isn't sense of purpose just conscientiousness or isn't sense of purpose just, you know, like some people bring up like higher extroversion. When we're looking at this more short-term experience of sense of purpose, how, what do these big five state associations look like? And once again, how consistent are these across people? Because if it's the case 
that these patterns are very different across individuals, then that kind of tells us the importance of taking, if we are, you know, going to move on to intervention efforts, taking a much more individualized approach, which I think in the intervention context is probably more generally, you know, going to be more effective for people. <clears throat> but if it's the case where we see that like higher levels of sense of purpose are consistently following higher levels of positive emotion in general, then that tells us, okay, you know, maybe purpose isn't what we need to focus on here, but you know, positive emotions are. And I don't suspect that that particular finding would be the case, but I don't know. We don't know yet. There's only been, I think, three or four studies to this point, even looking at sense of purpose in the short term. And so just because something's really distinct and a longitudinal context doesn't mean it's going to be so distinct in a micro longitudinal context. So being able to really get at these processes and seeing how similar or distinct they are across individuals, I I'm so excited. It's one of my, definitely one of the projects I've ever been the most excited about. So hopefully we get, you know, positive evaluations from the registered report and we can get collecting data. Awesome. Thank you. So you've mentioned that you published or got stuff accepted at developmental psychology. I saw you present stuff at personality conferences or also at like GSA, the Gerontological Society of America conference. What are the difficulties that you face in studying a construct that covers so much ground in like different subdisciplines? I think the biggest difficulty is I kind of fit in everywhere, but I feel like an outsider everywhere too, where I consider myself like first and foremost, a personality psychologist, but I think a lot of personality psychologists would not consider me a personality psychologist. I think there have been some shifts over the past several years where you don't have to study the big five to be a personality psychologist. If you think of my, my favorite framework for personality is like the neo-socio-analytic perspective of personality where, you know, the big five is this one very narrow like aspect of what personality is. It's the study of the individual and sense of purpose is inherently an individual difference because we're not all the same. And it's not tied to simply like a single group or a single trait or whatever. It's, it's, it's complicated, just like we as people are. Following that, I think the next identity what I would hold would be a you know, lifespan developmental researcher. Um, a lot of my more recent work has focused on older adults, but um, starting out, I was really interested in adolescents and college students. And that's something that I still, you know, hold true to, true to myself. Um, and I think in aging space, especially when, with, like, with like cognitive aging work, since the purpose is more welcomed because it's like proven itself as a construct to be, you know, valuable personality. I think, you know, well-being, you know, positive, positive affect, negative affect, life satisfaction, they definitely, I think, are more discussed in a personality context, but I'm hoping sense of purpose can enter the conversation a little bit more, more too. So working my best on that. Thank you. And then something that is also obvious when people like Google you or also from hearing from all of your papers that you're a super prolific writer. So you just started your second year of your postdoc, right? Yes. And on your Google Scholar, so for my research, it looks like you have 23 first author papers aside from your dissertation. So that's super impressive. Do you have any tips of becoming a prolific writer? How do you approach productivity at your job? Do you sleep? I try to sleep. I don't always sleep well, um, but I do try. Um, no, I, I think there's a few different things at play here. I think one thing I really appreciated when I first started working with Pat Hill is we answered smaller but important questions that gave me the opportunity to you know write brief reports and things that got me exposure to the publication process without being this like daunting four year long project. 
And I think those are great. And I think those are really meaningful. And those are things that as I've grown as a researcher, I've done more of, but very early on, I think it was really helpful to have these opportunities to just kind of get my like feet wet into research a little bit where those questions still needed to be answered, but they were, you know, smaller questions, like a narrower piece of the puzzle. And I think that gave me a lot more confidence with the publication process as far as well as more resilience, because getting a paper rejected that I've spent years working on versus something that we've, we didn't collect the data for it's secondary data analysis. We've been working on it, you know, for a few months, something like that. And it's a brief report. So it didn't take as long as right to write. Those are very different experiences. I've gotten rejection in both spaces and the longer it's taken to work on something, the much more devastating the rejection is. So I think that's one thing. Another thing that I think has been helpful for me is I really try to have projects in different stages. There are some days where the idea of writing makes me want to, you know, leave my apartment, sit in a park in silence for hours because I just, I can't, I can't think about it. Those are days where it's really great for me to be able to, you know, work in R, analyze data, clean data, whatever. And so by having projects at different stages, it makes it where, or editing, oh my gosh, editing is my least favorite thing in the world. I'm able to escape one task by working on another. So it almost, you know, it's like that idea of productive procrastination rather than cleaning my house. I'm just working on a different, a different project. I think one of the reasons that I have gotten so interested in researching purpose is because researching purpose is, is my purpose. It fills me with like passion and joy and excitement. Like so few other things in my life do. And I feel really blessed to have that experience where like, there are times that I do not want to look at my computer. I feel like burnout, tired, whatever. I don't want to touch things, but then most of the time I'm really excited to be doing what I'm doing and grateful that I'm found this job and Hopefully I can stay in research and academia because there's genuinely nothing else I could imagine fitting everything that I want to do and like the skills I have to offer so, so well. And then I think finally, one other thing I think is important to mention here is I don't, I don't have children. I don't have a lot of responsibilities. It's just, you know, me and my plants. And so I don't have to juggle what a lot of other people in academia do. And I think it makes it where I can work the same number of hours, but then when I'm not working... I'm resting or I'm reading or I'm taking a walk by the lake or things that I'm experiencing more recovery that not everyone can. And I think that's a really important distinction to make because that that's a privilege on my part that I'm able to kind of be selfish with my time when I'm, when I'm not working. And I imagine that would make a difference, especially during COVID. Oh my gosh, all the people with who were parenting during COVID, I cannot imagine what that was like. Um, and so I also just have fewer things that I have to have to juggle. Oh, well, thank you so much. I think we're at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for coming and um, answering all my questions. Yes, I'm so grateful that I got to be here. And if anyone has listening to this has questions for me, for me about purpose, um, I would love to answer them. I love to talk about research. So find me on Twitter, email, ResearchGate. Awesome. Carrier pigeon, you know, whatever. <laughs> 